I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peace builders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to communities, eavesdrop on their communities and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by... Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy. This is She Talks Peace. Salam, dear listeners. Thank you for joining us for another episode of She Talks Peace. I am Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, joining you from Manila. Dear listeners, it has been a sad day. Allow me to take a little time to pay tribute to a dear friend and a previous guest on She Talks Peace, who passed away on August 22nd. That, uh, that was yesterday. Susan Ople, whom her friends called Toots, was the secretary of the Philippines Department of Migrant Workers. She was my classmate at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and we were together for the master's program for public management. There were five of us Filipinos in that class, and we were tight, really tight. Had lunch together, went uh, to Salem <laughs> together, and went around shopping together at thrift shops. And um, we just learned of her death uh, yesterday through a Zoom call with her only child, Estelle. So many national political leaders have poured tributes on uh, the passing of uh, Toots Ople, even the president. President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. said her death was a great loss to the country. And uh, he said, it's very, very sad news. I have lost a friend. The Philippines has lost a friend. Secretary Ople is a special person with a deep compassion for the Filipino people that she had cared for, mainly the migrant workers. The Senate president, Juan Miguel Zubiri called Toots Ople a dedicated public servant with a huge heart for our people. While the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Martin Romualdez, hailed her as a great and tireless champion of laborers and overseas Filipino workers. 
As for us, her friends, we just cried. Toots had won her battle with cancer and was in remission when she accepted President Marcos' appointment as secretary of the newly created Department for Migrant Workers. She knew it would be stressful, but she took the challenge. How could she not? When she had made it her mission to fight for the rights of uh, our migrant workers, for their welfare, and had championed the protection of our people against trafficking. Toots had followed in the footsteps of her late father, former Senator Blas Ople, who served for 19 years as the labor minister of uh, President Marcos's father, the late Ferdinand Marcos Sr. Senator Blas Ople was a labor leader who had consistently championed the cause of Philippine labor. You know, Toots was truly her father's daughter. She was the heir apparent to their shared cause of protecting Philippine labor, protecting migrant workers. You know, in the short time that she was secretary for migrant workers, Toots negotiated safer labor agreements with Middle Eastern countries. You know, she shut down scams and human trafficking schemes, repatriated distressed workers, many of whom she personally assisted. She even went to Sudan. All of this stress, I guess, was just too much. Toots work had earned her international awards, including one from Harvard and one from the U.S. State Department. Her accomplishments led the U.N. to appoint her as a member of the Board of Trustees of the United Nations Trust Fund for Victims of Human Trafficking, the first Filipino to hold that post. Dear listeners, if you're interested in our conversation with Toots, I invite you to listen to episode 12. When Toots, Malaysia's Adrian Pereira, and I discussed the modern-day slavery known as human trafficking. You know, we, her friends, cautioned her to take it easy. Stress is a killer, particularly when one is already recovering from a serious condition like cancer. But Toots would make light of it would just smile and say she would. So I'd like to say farewell to Toots Ople. You may be gone, but you will be forever in our thoughts. Even today, dear listeners, as I prepare to have a conversation with our guest on She Talks Peace, Because, you know, Toots and I had several conversations about the situation of uh, our citizens who are caught in trafficking, not just the adults, but even the children. And um, when we talk about the problems of children, the problems of protecting uh, our children, I remember a discussion in 2019 when our guest uh, was at the Senate hearing. 
the dismal condition of youth care facilities supposed to help children in conflict with the law was highlighted at the Senate panel hearing on proposed bills. Our guest, who was at that hearing, said that our centers meant to take care of these children. We call them Bahay Pag-asa, House of Hope. She said these centers had subhuman conditions due to budget constraints. She said they lacked the minimum staff requirement. They even lacked food for children. Some of the Bahay Pag-asa that we saw, she said, are worse than prisons. They don't have programs, beds, and cabinets. Last year, our guest was at the United Nations in Geneva. She was part of a Philippine delegation meeting with the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. And um, there, the, uh, they had discussions about what the government has done to protect the children, to promote um, their rights. And the committee raised questions on so many issues, including the levels of violence in which children were exposed, child marriage, child labor, discrimination of children who are in the LGBTQ community, trafficking, sexual abuse, domestic violence, among so many. And uh, the committee said violence against women was a big, uh, against children was a big issue with over 80% of children being exposed to violence in the home and elsewhere. So today, my dear listeners, it is really great that we have as our guest, Attorney Tricia Oko, a child rights advocate and lawyer by profession, Tricia Oko is the executive director of the Juvenile Justice and Welfare Council, an attached agency of the Department of Social Welfare and Development. Tricia Oko finished both her degrees, Juris Doctor and Bachelor of Science majoring in management at the Ateneo de Manila University and completed her Masters of Law in International Human Rights Law at the Central European University. She has extensive experience in juvenile justice and children's issues brought by years in child rights advocacy. Attorney Tricia participates in advisory capacity to certain international organizations focusing even on counterterrorism issues related to juvenile justice. She also presents the juvenile justice issues both in national and international for us. Welcome to She Talks Peace, Attorney Tricia. Ma'am, hello. Good afternoon, Ma'am Amina. Thank you so much and uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a privilege to uh, join you in this podcast. So uh, here I am. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Attorney Tricia, for making time. You've been so busy. I mean, we've been trying to arrange yes. this, this <laughs> chat of ours for more than two months now. Yes, so, that's true. So, you know, it, it, it would really be great to listen to what you've been doing um, all this you know, all this time. But first, uh, Attorney Tricia, 
Tell us about the Juvenile Justice Welfare Council. What does it do really for um, for our children? Okay, so uh, we just call it for short, JJWC. Um, it's an attached agency of the DSWD. And its main focus is really to ensure that the law, the Juvenile Justice and Welfare Act, is properly implemented through policy formulation, coordination, and monitoring. And the ones who are uh, who are going to implement the law are the member agencies. We have 14 member agencies, 12 coming from the government, and two coming from the non-government organizations to represent the civil society. And um, we also do coordination coordinating agencies. But anyway, um, the very principle that it holds why we have that council is um, to approach, uh, to, to, to handle the issues of children, the administration of uh, justice, especially for children at risk or coming into conflict with the law as um, like a whole nation or whole government approach because everybody should be inf- involved when it comes to um, achieving the common goal, which is to um, address the issue of children coming into conflict with the law. Yeah. Um, you had uh, partnered uh, with us to look at the situation, for instance, of children in the conflict areas of the Philippines who have been ensnared uh, yeah. by, uh, by terrorism. And uh, one of the the issues that you had been fighting for, uh, Attorney Tricia, was this idea of some power legislators to lower the age, right? Yeah. Of liability for a crime. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted it first to be nine years old. I, I, I couldn't believe that, Attorney Tricia. And then later on, because that didn't work, they wanted it to be. 12 years old, 12 years but I old. gather that it didn't work, right? The no. age of criminal liability is still 15. I 15 mean, years of thank age. You, thank you, really, Attorney Tricia, for holding firm on that one. But tell us, why do you think we shouldn't lower the age of criminal liability? Um, uh, I, I just want to clarify that right now the council has no position when it comes to lowering of the age. And this uh, the history is because uh, last, with the previous administration, because we are in an executive branch, and in the previous administration, the president already made his position yeah. about wanting to lower the age. So out of respect to that uh, uh, mandate of the president, and since we are an executive, a part of the executive branch, the council decided to just not make a position about lowering but nevertheless, um, the age has not been lowered because we were trying to explain to our legislators yes. that before we do that, before we make changes in the law, we have to really study. You have in, we have to have an in-depth analysis if it's really a problem of the law or if it's a problem of implementation. Because before, when we had this uh, issue, kasi dati pa naman, ma'am, ever since, we already have that uh, um, a lot of people have already been wanting, and uh, not a lot, but there are some. There are movements from several groups, um, initiatives to lower the age, um, without proper study, without um, really showing um, evidence that it's going to be effective when you talk about um, prevention, crime prevention. And we have a historical experience before that, 
when our uh, criminal age was just nine years old under the revised penal code wasn't really as uh, effective when it comes to preventing committing crime. In fact, mm -hmm. what happens to these children, what happened to them at that time, mm -hmm. was uh, they go deeper into the criminal justice process and they grow up becoming worse off than they were when they get in, into the criminal justice system. So, yung mga, uh, for instance, uh, they were just accused of um, stealing candies or, you know, stealing yes. even cell phones. Um, yes. It's a crime of survival. But when they got out of the criminal justice system, um, they've, been, they've already learned about many other trades in the prison system. They've already been contaminated by other, um, uh, shall we say, uh, detention prisoners or even hard, hardened criminals. So oh, yeah. it's really not uh, good for their rehabilitation. So that's, that's one of the reasons why before that was the position of the council. Uh, I'm just not in the authority to, to, to tell them that we don't want to lower them at this because we haven't really made another position on that. It has to be decided by the 14-member council. But uh, the, the good thing is um, in this administration, um, we, I know for a fact that the president is a, uh, is a child-friendly um, child rights advocate and... Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are really no initiatives right now as we speak about lowering the age. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm really encouraged uh, by that because, you know, um, I have so many colleagues who are working in uh, areas of conflict. And everywhere you go, you see children who are affected. And what worries us really, these children they have no idea about what they're doing. If their parents or somebody older, somebody influential tells them to act as a lookout for a terrorist group, what's a child to do? I mean, you look at the, the case of child soldiers in, in Africa, for instance, and even in, in the Philippines, where, where, you know, we, still, we still have them. Um, and, and the thing is, they are still children. And the Philippines, right, is a signatory to the Convention of the Rights of the Child. That was in 1990. So I am encouraged by what you're saying, Attorney Tricia, and hopeful that uh, sane minds would prevail. And actually, Attorney Tricia, I'm hoping that uh, women who are mothers and who understand this reality of a child not being in the right frame of mind to make such decisions, Yes. We'll have a say in we'll have a say in the Senate and uh, and in Congress, which uh, which now makes me um, want to ask you about what's happening to children in conflict with law in areas like uh, Muslim Mindanao. There are many who have been uh, detained or or caught because they were, I guess, part of the families of terrorists or. Uh, or rebels, what is our government doing to try and rehabilitate them? Mm -hmm. That's also, uh, you know, ma'am, uh, um, of course you're aware of this, that we are doing a, a baseline study yeah. on children affected by counterterrorism. And um, our writer and consultant for that is your sister, who is really very capable and really good at it. Um, Mom, as attorney Marasul, and what we discovered so far, 
um, during those uh, times that we went down and, uh, you know, uh, do the interviews, etc. And we had our also learning sessions together with mm -hmm. um, five other countries is that um, we lack, we still lack the rehabilitation programs, particularly focused on uh, children who have been affected by terrorism mm -hmm. and counterterrorism context. So um, I hope when we finish that baseline study, we will uh, make it a basis in order to strengthen our programs, um, particularly when it comes to reintegration and uh, rehabilitation and reintegration um, of uh, children. When you talk about um, ch children who are recruited or exploited in uh, extreme violence, we also believe that no child recruitment process can be regarded as truly voluntary. And um, when you recruit these children, we also think, we also believe that it's an act of violence against them. So they should be treated primarily as victims. Some of them might be, might need to get to be accountable if they commit a crime, but primarily they should be treated as victims. So in relation to rehabilitation, when we do rehabilitation program, we have to take that into consideration that these children had been radicalized. They had been victimized first before they even uh, committed crimes. So yung isa rin naming focus doon is to uh, really push for these children to um to 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 be to go through that to our specialized juvenile justice system and apply all the benefits of RA9344 including the application of age and I'm emphasizing on that particularly because what happens now for instance the police uh, did not do their prop, the proper investigations. Um, you can have children who are not really and uh, they're not really adults, but because of the improper investigations, you know, they have uh, they become adults for purposes of fighting a case against. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, uh, Attorney Tricia, my... Um my friends and, and colleagues uh, in the peace building uh, network from Indonesia. I'm so impressed by what the, the civil society is trying to do at the community level, trying to uh, develop programs for reintegration and rehabilitation of uh, children and, and families, trying to lobby their government to come up with uh, more programs to rehabilitate children. In fact, um, at one point in time, they were even trying to uh, have a, a protocol at the UN to deal with this particular issue because, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines as well, we, we actually had citizens, right, who went to Syria and joined the uh, ISIS. And now uh, they have to be repatriated. What's what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to the children in the Philippines, Attorney Tricia? What does happen to children and families of men 
who went and dragged their families along, went to Syria and became part of the uh, the, the ISIS. Um, we just do some recommendations, uh, but we have not we haven't been involved because of the security issues. But we provide um, advice to them uh, what to do in case the children uh, get repatriated, get back to the Philippines. And uh, one of the things that we really push for is um, to do a like what I've, the, uh, I think we've mentioned it before, a complete rehabilitation and reintegration for them, and just to make sh- and ma- make sure that um, th- the society is still safe. So um, I would, uh, what we would advise them is to, um, you know, when you talk about because uh, it's also an issue of how do you preserve public safety now because you're getting back these children in the country. So uh, it has to work. Uh, both of them have to work together. So they are not um, they are not divided about preserving public safety and protecting children's rights. Those two things should be complementary, and they should be. Uh, you should pursue them concomitantly, and not just uh, when you know when you do when you protect children's rights, you have to give up the safety of the public. So. For instance, if you put them in a rehab center, if, if they needed to be institutionalized, you have to make sure that the um, rehabilitation center is equipped with trained people who can really handle the child very well. Uh, the child doesn't need to be uh, isolated from other children, especially if there's no danger of uh, radicalization, because the child needs to be reminded of what is normal. And one of the things, one of the ways to do that is to um, mix the child with other children, and you have to make sure that the house parents, the social worker working with the children, um, also have the proper capacity to handle the situation. So those things, and of course, uh, we were talking about Bahay Pag-Asas, because you can also put them in uh, institutions like Bahay Pag-Asas if they have a pending case against them, just in case they do, or other institutions, but you have the proper funding to um, these institutions that will handle them. And you have I to have... Attorney Patricia, funding, funding, <laughs> funding. Are you succeeding <laughs> in Congress? Are you going to be uh-huh. able to get the funds you need to really improve your the Bahay Pag-asa? Uh-huh. Um, we are very lucky because um, our uh, sponsor for, the, um, for our budget for the DSWD's budgets, which means uh, we are also included in that because we are an attached agency, um, is a child rights advocate. Uh, it's actually Senator Aini Marcos. So um, for uh, two, two, two years in a row now, um, she's been uh, giving us congressional initiative for Bahay Pag-asa support. And because of that, we were able to uh, help a lot of Bahay Pag-asas now um, improve their, um, train their house parents, train the social workers, uh, provide them with beds and other um, other things that they need because not a lot of them have the, you know, there are many Baha'i, there are a lot, there are Baha'i Pag-asas in rich cities with really good, uh, really good uh, equipment, facilities, etc. But you will not expect that from um, LGUs yes. with lesser resources. So we, uh, also assist them. The problem yes. really where you have conflict with with law, where you have uh, uh, 
rebels and where you have um, terrorists are the poor provinces and they can't they can't really afford the the budget they have uh, they have other priorities which in, in some areas uh, of conflict uh, indonesia and uh, the other uh, uh, countries that that i know of the civil society comes in really strong to fill in the gap in our own country and in the communities that, that we have been serving what can communities do to help rehabilitate these children? Because sometimes when I talk to people, for instance, in Sulu and Basilan, they have certain fears about these children because they think that they have gone over to the dark side and they are uh, shunned by the community. What's your advice for, for the communities? How should they how should they act? What should, what can they do to help rehabilitate these children and also their families? Um, I think uh, one of the things, um, I will say it from the government perspective, uh, it's also the responsibility of the government to also capacitate the community on how to handle these children. Because, you know, uh, when these children are recruited and, of course, sometimes they commit offenses or about to commit an offense, you also have to look at the community as a victim in the situation because right, right. yeah it's it's about um peace it's about security so the human secu- the security is gone and then these children just come back and if you don't have that capacity on how to handle them then uh, the child will be discriminated and um you know so one of the ways for instance to capacitate the community is to to do counter narratives uh, when you recruit um, children, what do you do with them? You exploit um, perceived or real grievances, manipulate the message, and convince these children to join because of those. So uh, the community has to have a counter-narrative for uh, the false teachings or false uh, messages that um, they are giving. Um, yeah, what, that's one of them. And another, I think we have to train the mothers on how I'm really I'm I really want to emphasize yes. on that because the mothers can really yes. detect it uh, way better than other people can. Right. So you, we have to teach them how to detect when their children are being recruited, and uh, we have to involve the youth, like participation of the youth, um, empowering the youth, and uh, making them more resilient from uh, recruitment. And how do you make them uh, more resilient from that? Uh, Providing uh, preventive programs to keep them away from uh, that recruitment. Um, In our law, at least in uh, in the, uh, sorry, not in our law, but in the juvenile justice law, we talk about comprehensive um, juvenile intervention program. And it talks a lot about prevention, which should be the priority. So it could be as simple as providing them the basic services that they need. Because one of the pushback factors of um, being recruited into terrorism is poverty. So you provide them with access to access to health, access to education. You have to teach the children to think critically so they don't just get recruited very easily. And that means you have to have to give them you have to give them a um, good education. But yeah, awareness, uh, we have to teach them uh, to, to, to teach our community awareness um, about the issue and how to counter it. 
but but I'm speaking about it. I'm not advising the community, but I'm I'm actually advising the government <laughs> because we really owe it to the community to help them. Let's let's hope, Attorney Tricia, that uh, government does listen because after all. Our government is so proud that we have a national action plan on prevention of violent extremism. Yes. We were the first in uh, Asia to have a national action plan on women, peace, and security. We are proud, the government is proud, that we now have a national action plan for youth, peace, and security. Oh, so, yeah, know, that's right. I heard we about are so that. proud, right? I mean, <laughs> if government is so proud of this accomplishment, well, we should put their money where their mouth is, right? Yes. <laughs> and and mean, that includes me, mom, because I'm also from the government. Yeah, but, but uh, you know, uh, you've been on the, the other side of, side of the table. Yes, but you've been the, on the, the other side of the, the table, mom. You used to be with government. <laughs> mom, sorry. Uh-huh. You know, I've, been, I've been reading up on uh, the presentations that you had made in Congress and uh, and in Senate. and. Uh, you are on the side of the angels. You are there Thank you. to protect uh, our children. You know, a couple of decades ago, UNICEF um, commissioned a study. And I was one of those they engaged to do interviews with child soldiers. And uh, my area were the child soldiers from the Muslim groups. So the MNLF, the Moro National Liberation Front the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and even managed to get some child soldiers who had been conscripted by the Abu Sayyaf, who have now linked with, uh, with ISIS. And the inter... Oh, yeah. And uh, dear listeners, uh, if you're interested, you can you know, search for it online with UNICEF. It's called Adult Wars Child Soldiers. And when we interviewed this uh, these children, Attorney Tricia, you know, you're really, as a mother, you feel it in your heart because the children are saying if they only had the chance, they want to go back to school. They want to play with their friends. So it's very clear they had no choice. They never wanted to go into this, but they found themselves in it. So when you're talking about, you know, rehabilitating them and the fact that they're not, you know, of the the age of reason to make these decisions and um, rehabilitating them is important. We shouldn't put them in detention centers and jails with the hardened criminals and the hardened terrorists. So I'm really hoping, Attorney Tricia, that all of this can convince our government to put more Funding for the rehabilitation of uh, of these children, but Attorney Tricia, you know, if you were advising the president, um, what would be your number one priority for them to for government to fund to take care of these children who are in conflict with law? I, I suppose you would say fully fund pagasa, dabahay pagasa. <laughs> Well, well, that's part of it. Yes, of course. But I think um, they should really um, focus on uh, prioritizing prevention. We don't even have to wait for these children to become um, in conflict with the law, but address the push and pull factors that uh, make them commit uh, crimes. 
I'm just not I'm not just talking about children who are recruited um in in extreme violence but um children in general because you, you know um even petty offenses or children going deeper into the criminal justice can also push them to get radicalized and get um recruited by violent extremist groups and terrorism. So we should really focus on the prevention level. If we could provide these children all the rights that they have, yung basic rights lang like access to you, like, like I said, um, taking care of them, education, giving their families livelihood. Um, I think that would, that would already cut a lot of the issues that we have or that would already resolve a lot of the issues that we in relation to juvenile um, delinquency. When uh, when I think about the job that you have and the limited funds that government provides for councils like the the juvenile justice um, welfare council, I couldn't help but uh, imagine you, a woman, defending your budget in this male-dominated uh, legislative uh, body. That we have. And I wanted to ask you, Attorney Tricia, is it difficult for a woman compared to a man to really get across your agenda in a male dominated legislative body? And as a woman, what do you do so that you can get your voice heard? Um, okay. <laughs> Okay, with, with all due respect, a lot of people would want to know, Attorney Tricia, because I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are in the same situation. <laughs> yes, of course, with all due respect to our officials. Um, yes, I also feel that it's more difficult, you know, um, just just for the very simple that you're a woman, yeah. you know, um, compared to a, ma- a man speaking in front of the decision makers. It really, you can really feel the difference already, but um, of course um, we have to make our voices heard as men. And uh, one of the things that we do, you know, my my office, mom, is dominated also by a lot of women. So, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, it's dominated by um, women. Uh, and um, what we do is we really. Uh, make sure that when we argue our case in front of all the decision makers, we make sure that we have the proper facts and figures and it's well-researched. Um, that's one way of getting the message across to them. Uh, of course, um, it would be better if we just don't make any distinction if you're a man or a woman mm-hmm. for as long as they listen to us. But um, th- yeah, that's one of the things. And secondly, maybe... Um, because our issue is children. And when you talk about children, everybody's in agreement that we have to um, advocate for them. We have to help them. We have to assist them. Even, uh, you know, I can look at the, I, I would look at the politicians. Uh, some of them, they don't want the age lowered. Some of them, they want the age lowered. But at the end of the day, you can really see that many of them, most of them, their intention is really to, um, you know, it's for the well-being of the children as well as public safety. So, yeah, so we have a lot of challenges, but uh, we we do our best. And um, thankfully, um, they listen to us. Of course, it doesn't mean that uh, the, the issue is always prioritized, but yeah, we, we can get our message across somehow with the help of uh, people like you, ma'am, who, who, uh, who, is, who 
really help us push the rights of women and you know uh, giving us voices and platform to um to tell our message and to tell our advocacies to the decision we try we try, we try but but attorney Tricia, <laughs> i want to share you some strategies some tips that very savvy women politicians um used to share with me when I was working for my mother who was in the Senate at the time. Uh, my mother, her strategy was to act like a mother to her colleagues in the Senate, which is relatively easy because after all, there are only 24 senators. So she would be the, you know, the, the mother, if she sees one of them looking pale or, you know, unwell, oh, she okay. go to them and say, what's wrong? Is there anything I can do to make a drink and stuff like that? And it does help. Another very savvy politician would, would send very thoughtful presents. They would send durian from time to time. And what they were trying to do was really to strengthen the interpersonal relationship. Now, there were also uh, political leaders, women political leaders, um, who I guess were following the very Western tradition where if I am right, then I will argue with you. You know, whoever has a stronger argument uh, should be the one that uh, carries the day. Between those two kinds of uh, strategies, because, you know, my mom, I guess, and the other savvy political leader who would seven gifts, they seem to be adapting like a more Asian, you know, style of trying to get what they want. Whereas the other one who says, if I am right, I will argue my position. And if it's proven to be right, you have to agree with me. That seems to be more Western. In the Philippine context, Attorney Tricia, I totally agree. Who do you think would work better for women who have an agenda, an advocacy that uh, uh, she's I think uh, I think we should uh, we should really do the Asian thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you, you know, Mama, uh, this is just to share, but this this is yeah. not um, this, this does not apply to all um, the decision makers. I that's true. Deal, dealt with but uh, sometimes you know when I was uh, this was so many years back when I was younger uh, sometimes I don't feel like I, I was being taken seriously mm-hmm. and they would call me instead of calling me by my first name or maybe my position it's okay whatever they want to call they would call me like uh, my dear or sweetheart or something mm-hmm. like that it's not mm-hmm. it's not at all harassment but you know how patronizing it is uh, and yes. it usually happens with Older uh, male, I'm just going to say decision maker, and uh, someone that they took to who is younger and plus a woman. So, <laughs> mm. but um, it works uh, if, if you do the Asian thing, which is, you know, just trying to be calm about it, not really argue right. your case, but try to get your message across. They do listen. So, yeah, I think that's effective here in the Philippines at least. I think so too. What we in college, right? We learned about this smooth interpersonal relationship. (laughs) But I I love your yes. But I love what you just uh, shared about your mom being very motherly because (laughs) (laughs) 
No, that's a good tactic. So one of these days, I'll also apply that, you know, t- trying to <laughs> show that you really care. <laughs> because, you know, once you have broken the ice, and I think that's, that's really, if, if you study negotiating techniques, that's one of the strategies, really, that, uh, that they talk about. If uh, you can break the ice, then it's easier to talk to the other side because you're no longer adversarial. You're now getting them to work with you to come up with a solution that's uh, acceptable to both. But Attorney Tricia, I really wish all the best for you in your struggle to get more funding for the uh, JJWC and for the Bahay ng Pag-asa. And uh, I'm, I hope government listens to you because this is a very important uh, territory for us. Majority of the population of the Philippines is young. And if yeah, you don't care, right, educating the young so that you prevent the recruitment into criminality, into violent extremism, then we have a serious problem in uh, 10 to 20 years. So, and if you look at the statistics, I'm sorry. Yeah, if you yeah, look at the, the statistics now uh, on children in conflict with the law, before it's yeah. 98% boys and 2% girls. Now the girls, uh, the female um, population right. is increasing. So it's now 5%. And most of yeah. them are being used um, as drug couriers, etc. Yeah. So it's quite alarming. And we don't have facilities just for girls. So that's also one of the things that we want to focus on right now to uh, rehabilitation program that take into consideration the gender of the child yes. as well as facilities that will really take uh, uh, focus on um, girls and yes. other uh, and gender in particular, issues yeah. on gender. And in, in Muslim Mindanao, we always uh, felt that the women would be uh, protected, you know, even in deliberation fronts or in the terrorist groups that somehow women would be protected, but no yes. more. Because mm-hmm. as we have uh, uh, found out, now there are Muslim women who have become, uh, you know, bombings. And they've been yeah. uh, involved in bombings in my own home hometown uh, in Holo Sulu. We have women farmers already. So, yeah, we, we really need to take a very close look at the expansion of recruitment now focused on girls and women. So thank you so much, Attorney Tricia, for joining us and for making time for this discussion. I'm hopeful that once the, the baseline study uh, is done, and that the report is ready, that uh, we might be able to have another conversation with you because there are so many eye-openers in that uh, study that that you did on children who have been ensnared in violent extremism. But before we go, Attorney Tricia, what are your final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? What message would you like to give those who are listening to us? Um, invest in our children. They are our long-term investment. They are half of our population or maybe a, a little less than half, but they are all of our future. And if we can 
guarantee that we are really giving them this protective environment where they can grow and develop and become um, useful citizens of the country. We are sure that the Philippines is going to go really far, you know, uh, because we raise good children. Uh, you know, ma'am, I don't want us to become poster uh, poster of poverty in other countries. Dapat yung mga children natin, uh, pinapakita siya, we're proud of them, uh, show them that they're winners and um, they, they have high achievements and we can be very proud of them, but it's up to us now if uh, uh, it's up to us if we want to help them and really make them uh, grow and develop into good citizens of Filipino citizens. So that's my message. Invest in our children. Thank you so much, Attorney Tricia. Dear listeners, you heard Attorney Tricia Oko, the Executive Director of the Juvenile Justice and Welfare Council of the Philippines. And I know that many of you listening to us right now are also in countries that have similar situation. And I hope that Attorney Tricia's experience and uh, recommendations uh, for the protection of our children would be valuable. I know they're valuable to me because I come from Sulu, a very conflict-affected area. So thank you, dear Tricia. Thank you, dear listeners, for listening to us. But before I go, let me just invite you to give us a follow at She Talks Peace on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get updated on the latest episode releases. And if you have a message for Attorney Tricia Oko or you have ideas to share, please send us an email at shetalkspeacepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, thank you again. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy saying join us again next time. And bye. Mom, thank you and good to you and what you do. Thank you. She Talks Peace is brought to you in partnership with Podcast Network Asia and Podmetrics, the easiest way to monetize your podcast. For more information, check out their website at podcastnetwork.asia and podmetrics.co. The views and opinions expressed by the podcast creators, hosts, and guests do not necessarily reflect the official policy and position of Podcast Network Asia, the hosts of the program, or other programs of the network. Any content provided by the people on the podcast are of their own opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything.